back to the Just for a Closer Walk podcast. This is episode 20. My name is Joel Oslin, and I'm privileged and honored to have you here today. So we've been going through a series here, picking up in the Old Testament, doing a recap, kind of a high-level overview of some of the significant things that we're going to need to know about the Old Testament in order to really effectively dive into a New Testament study, which we will get to uh, hopefully here in the next few months or so. And, uh, and we'll probably end up camping out there in the New Testament for quite a while because there's a lot to unpack. So where we left off last episode is with the, uh, the prophet Samuel and kind of the early stages of his uh, story. So picking up with them and, uh, and talking a little bit about Eli the priest and his two sons and really kind of just Israel's dark age, their dark era coming out of this season of the judges as it were, and uh, and kind of making, we, we spent a bit of time reading through the Philistines and how they had uh, basically defeated the Israelites and actually taken the Ark of the Covenant captive as the spoils of war. And so, of course, through a series of amusing events, if you're, uh, if you're not as familiar with that one, I would encourage you to go back and either uh, either check out the previous episode or just go back and read through some of the early chapters of 1 Samuel, and you'll get to read some pretty amusing stories of God uh, really interacting with the Philistines. And, and what's what's really astounding is the takeaway that we get from it is the the Philistines, these pagan people, these Gentiles, uh, they actually wind up acting a lot more godly, in a sense. They have a greater reverence and honor for God than at that time, at least in uh, in their history, than the Israelites did at large, at least. So it's pretty interesting. Um, at the end of the story, the uh, the Philistines end up sending the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, and uh, and again, just go check out that story. It's it's worth the read. So where we pick up in First Samuel chapter seven is one of the one of the uh, the good marks in Israel's history. So this is. This is where the people are coming back together and Samuel the prophet is kind of encouraging them just to return to the Lord wholeheartedly. And so in chapter 7, this is 1 Samuel, starting at verse 3, it says, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord to serve him alone. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines." And so the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtoreth and served the Lord alone. And so that's a, a beautiful picture of the repentance uh, narrative of the people just turning back to the Lord and serving him fully rather than the Baals and the Ashtoreth. And a little bit, uh, just a few verses further down there in verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen. And he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. Um, Ebenezer just translates to the stone of help. And I think that's a good takeaway, a good uh, application that we can use in our own lives, is just to think back to remember how, for the Lord, how far the Lord has brought us thus far. And uh, just to be encouraged that we can trust him to continue to lead us and to continue to preserve us. We, we, the more that we gain this 
beautiful picture, this true revelation of God's nature. We, we get this clearer, this more and more clear picture that he really is a God that is good and that his ultimate aim for us is love and for us to experience life abundant and in unbroken relationship with him. And that's, uh, that's kind of the same uh, God that we see in the, in the Old Testament. It's the same God that we see revealed in Jesus in the New Testament. And the same God that we see revealed in the Holy Spirit that's living in us, in his church, even now and today. So we do see this beautiful thing, this Ebenezer stone. What's, uh, what's sad is it doesn't take too long. Now, to their defense, this is coming out of the dark era of the judges, um, so that is their their one defense, is that that was a pretty rough season in Israel's history. Uh, but just in the next chapter, in chapter 8, uh, verses 4 through 7, we get to a really kind of a sad turning point uh, once again in Israel's history. Starting in verse 4, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came, came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now therefore appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But this thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, but the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they have said to you. For they have, re- not, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being the king over them. And so in a nutshell, if you'll remember back earlier in the, in the Exodus narrative, God's intention was for the people to come out and to live as a family, to live as, as tribes, and to live and walk under the lordship of God and let him be their king. He wants them to look different and unique from all the peoples of the earth. He wants them to not look like all of the, the typical failed attempts at seeking life and fulfillment through non-spiritual means or through non-godly means. And the people, they just keep coming back in this cycle of saying, you know what? We don't want to look holy. We don't want to look different. We don't want to look different and unique. Um, we want we want to look the same. We want to look like all of these failed attempts at seeking life and pursuing life through idolatry and through nationalism and through seeking our own, you know, greedy ends and causes. And they say, no, we want a king. We want to look like other nations. We want, we're not content to just be a family. We want to turn into a nation, a political force. Um, And in doing so, they are really just rejecting God as their king. And that's, again, just another great tragedy. It it brings us back to Exodus when, when God says that he wants to interact with his people, but the people freak out and say, no, don't let God speak with us directly. Um, Moses, you go up and talk to God for us. You'll be our emissary. You know, so you kind of get that picture reiterated here in First Samuel as the people saying, nope, we're sick and tired of looking different and unique. We want to look exactly like everybody else. We don't want to be holy or unique. And that's, that's just heartbreaking to the heart of God when you look at it. And his, his goal is, is for a relationship, for reconciliation, for us to just... Uh, truly be able to live life abundant, a life to the max, which is one of the reasons I think in John 10, 10, where Jesus makes the observation that, that he has come, that we may have life abundant, a life to the max, but it's, it's the enemy, the deceiver that comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. 
And so we see that, that connection, that interconnection throughout the story, throughout the narrative of the people of God and the people, you know, I guess, <laughs> through the, the story of humanity in history. So Samuel, of course, is not very excited about this. Um, he actually, he does go about uh, fulfilling the people's wish, but he actually, he kind of circles back around in, uh, in chapter 12, and he just chastises the people for a little while, which I think was funny. Um, let's see, chapter 12, where did that go? So it's kind of the last few verses of, uh, of chapter 12. So Samuel, he's, he spends the whole chapter just kind of chewing the people out for, uh, for seeking a king and, and seeking uh, to basically despise God. And so the last few verses, uh, verse 20, Samuel said to the people, Do not fear, for you have committed a great evil, yet don't turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after the futile things that cannot profit or deliver, because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. And notice that there, God's faithfulness is not contingent upon our faithfulness. God's faithfulness is contingent upon his own faithfulness. (laughs) Praise the Lord for that. He will not abandon his people on account of his great name. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against you by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth and with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you do still continue to act wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. So there you have it. Uh, Samuel trying to encourage the people, even in spite of their great unfaithfulness and their their insistence on looking like everybody else and having a king. He says, even still, in this, God will accommodate you in this decision because he still loves you. But even in this, I encourage you to live and walk faithfully and humbly and obediently so that it may go well for you. So, we're going to spend a little bit of time here over the next couple of episodes diving into... Uh, just a little bit more detail of a few of these kind of big figureheads that you're going to see come up uh, recurrent in the New Testament as well. So a few of these uh, figures that are going to be very significant to know about. So the first one is going to be Saul. And Saul being one of the the earliest kings of the United Nation of Israel. And uh, and it's kind of interesting. I actually really like the way that uh, Saul enters the scene, but it, there's a few things that are kind of funny when you when you get this picture of uh, of who Saul was initially. And so, in chapter nine, First uh, Samuel nine verses two and three, you really get a clear picture of of Saul's kind of attributes and what was it that was the most noteworthy about him. So it says Saul was choice. He was a choice and handsome man. There was not a more handsome person than he among all the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the peoples. So, so there you go. That's what the people were looking for in a king. They wanted somebody who was attractive and tall. Now the donkeys of Kish, which was Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Take now with you one of the servants and arise, go and search for the donkeys. So what I like about this is it actually shows uh, both there and also the verses that follow. It shows that Saul actually started out 
as a very uh, humble and obedient worker. And so he was still working at his father's estate at the time and was commanded to go out and search for the lost donkeys. And so he did. And so you get this picture of this guy being a hardworking individual that was humble enough to take orders and obedient enough to, to act on it, to live it out. So I like, to, I like to point out some of these things because I do think that Saul had some, some good attributes. He did start off on kind of a good note. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of scripture that emphasizes his high points. We get a whole lot more that emphasizes his, his negative attributes. And uh, we'll touch on a few of those as well. But he did start out, I think, as a humble and an obedient person and knew how to work hard, which is a very cool thing. Um, on a side note, uh, over in uh, chapter 13, we do see it listed out that Saul, uh, after coronated, he actually reigned over Israel for 42 years. So he started when he was 30 years old, and he wound up uh, dying at age 72, which is pretty significant. So, yeah, he reigned over the United Nation of Israel for 42 years. Okay, so Saul did have some military victories early on. He, uh, he was able to really help deliver the people from the Philistines quite a bit. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> it wasn't too far into the narrative before he started messing up. So when, uh, when Samuel came and spoke with Saul and kind of early on, he basically went through this process of, I guess, kind of spiritually preparing to be a king. And then, uh, and before that, or after that, of course, is where the coronation comes. And so when you look at it, actually over in verse 8, uh, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 8, um, Samuel gave Saul a couple of key instructions. Uh, and this was before the coronation, but this is basically saying, hey, there's going to be some battles against the Philistines coming up, and one of those is going to be down in Gilgal. And so this is one of the clear instructions. He says, you're going to go down before me. This is Samuel speaking to Saul. You'll go down before me to Gilgal and behold, I will come after you to offer the burnt offerings and sacrifice the peace offerings. And you should wait seven days until I come to you. And then I will show you what you should do as far as how to approach in the battle. And so when you skip ahead over to chapter 13, and this is when this battle is actually occurring. Oh, let's see. Where did it go? <laughs> I've got all my notes floating around here somewhere. Uh, verse 5, the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand, which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and they camped at Michmash, each of beth -Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, and the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs in cellars and in pits, and some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, here's a good thing. He was in Gilgal, so he was basically where he needed to be. So that was a good thing. But this was happening while all the people were following him and trembling. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, <laughs> behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, I 
saw that the people were scattering and you didn't come in the appointed days and the Philistines were assembling. And I said, well, the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked a favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. <laughs> you can just kind of imagine this whole uh, event unfolding. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept the command of the Lord with you. And so there's where you kind of see the first big uh, insight into what would really become uh, kind of a trend of Saul's uh, downfall. And in a nutshell, you could say it's a lot of things, um, but I think it really boils down to just a lack of faith uh, that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he would do. So you see that play out in a few ways. Some of it is Saul kind of being impulsive, um, acting as a prophet on behalf of the prophet, uh, taking upon himself to do the things that he's not supposed to do. Um, but it, uh, unfortunately, it even gets a little bit worse later on um, where he uh, he basically gets caught out. He gets he he falls in a sense in chapter 15. And when he gets caught and he gets called out, his request is really for Samuel to help him save face in front of the elders and, and in front of the people. Um, which we do see contrasted with, which would eventually be his successor, uh, which is David. And David, uh, later in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, um, after his interaction uh, with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet coming and calling him out, and uh, David's response is, I have sinned. And his hope is that he can just stay in relationship with God. He says, don't Go far from me. You know, please create in me a clean heart, a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Um, so you see really just this, this difference, this contrast of intention and of priority. For Saul, when he fell, when he, when he got called out, um, when his sin was exposed, he says, just help me say face in front of the people. But when David sinned and fell and was called out and exposed, his response was, to confess it and to say, Lord, renew me, renew my spirit, and my heart. Don't be far from me. So that's a very, very different approach. Um, now, what's kind of interesting is kind of getting back to Saul here. So he did mess up, um, but this was also at a very rough time in Israel's history because the Philistines had been such a force of oppression for so long up to this point. And what's interesting is when we go back and we look at 1 Samuel uh, chapter 13, and we get over to uh, verse 19, we actually see that no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords and spears. It's, so how's that for a battle plan? The Philistines came in and basically wiped out all of the Israel's Israelites' blacksmiths. They said, hey, if you can't make weapons, that means you're less likely to try to rebel against us. And the uh, I don't know. I actually thought that was kind of a creative approach. <laughs> um, so we do see something really cool. One of the big redeeming factors of Saul is actually his son, who is Jonathan. 
And Jonathan, as you know later in the story, becomes a really, really good, close, intimate friend with David, which is really cool. And we'll touch more on that in the next episode. Um, But Jonathan in himself was actually a very bold, very um, valiant warrior as well. And so I love this uh, this story, and it's one that you'll probably recognize, uh, but it's I think it's worth going through just because it's so encouraging to see the way that even one or two faithful people, even when faced with overwhelming odds and nobody else around them having courage or strength of heart, it can just take a couple of faithful people who trust what the Lord says and trust his ability to provide salvation, to provide uh, a way out. And they can start something great. God can use even just a couple of people acting faithfully to do something powerful. And so we'll kind of pick up right there with that verse. Uh, now, no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel. And no, for the Philistines said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords and spears. So all of Israel went down to the Philistines each to sharpen. <laughs> listen to this. They went to sharpen their plowshares, their mattocks, their axes, and their hoes. So basically all of their gardening utensils. They said, hey, we, we don't have swords and spears, so we're going to use our gardening utensils and fashion those into weapons so that we can defend ourselves. So the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, the axes, and to fix the hose. So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, with the exception that they were found with Saul and Jonathan. So there was basically one sword and spear for Saul, and one again for Jonathan. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So starting over here in, uh, in chapter 14, now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, come and let us cross over to the Philistines garrison that is on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying at the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is at Migron. And the people who were with him were only about 600 men. How do you like that for an army to try to overthrow 30,000? And Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And the people did not even know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes which means slippery. And the name of the other was Sene, which means thorny. So how do you like that? We've heard about being between a rock and a hard place. What about being between a slippery and a thorny place? (laughs) Between the two crags. The one crag rose on the north side opposite Michmash, and the other on the south side opposite Giba. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, he says, come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. And the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. (laughs) How do you love that? Perhaps. And so his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself. And here I am with you according to your desire. So then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come down to you. Well, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hands and this shall be the sign to us. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, behold, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer. And this is probably one of the funniest interactions, I think, in all of scripture. And they say, 
come up to us and we will tell you something. <laughs> and you can just picture them standing behind the poles of the of the gate, you know, slamming their fist into their hands, getting ready for a for to teach a nice little lesson <laughs> to Jonathan and to the armor bearer. Come up to us here and we will tell you something, a secret message. So Jonathan turned to his armor bearer and said, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. So Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan. And his armor bearer put some of them to death even after Jonathan. The first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men within about a half furrow and an acre of land. And from that point there arose trembling in the camp and in the field and amongst the people and even the garrison and the raiders trembled and the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. And so what the Philistines thought was going to be a fun little time to pound some lessons into Jonathan and his armor bear actually wound up becoming the source or the initiation of a great deliverance for the people of Israel from the people of the Philistines. Um, so that was kind of the uh, the instigation, Jonathan's faithfulness and his trust, his faith in God's ability to deliver even through a very small group of just Jonathan and his armor bearer, which is pretty cool. So again, we uh, we skip ahead a little bit later and we see just kind of a culmination or a, uh, a summation of Saul. Uh, this is later on and kind of just summarizing his reign. And it says, now, when Saul had taken over the kingdom of Israel, he fought against his enemies on every side. So during his kingly reign, he fought against the Moabites, uh, the sons of Ammon, Edom, kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. So really, Saul rose up as kind of this valiant general, this military deliverer for the people of Israel. And he acted valiantly, and he defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them, which is... Uh, Kind of the, the hallmark, the, <laughs> the legacy that Saul left. A legacy of violence, of military might and deliverance. And again, this was exactly what the Israelite people had asked for, even though it was not necessarily exactly what they needed. So, um, again, we already talked a little bit about his great fall, having a big deliverance and having a big argument with Samuel. And Samuel saying... <laughs> Saul, this is uh, this is not how it's going to work. Uh, you can't you can't just flat out disobey God's instructions and word, and then uh, expect for Him to still bless your reign as king. And so, what's really sad is you get to the end of of First uh, Samuel fifteen, and so Samuel does he he does relent. He goes in and he helps Saul to save face in front of the elders and in front of the people of Israel. But he gives a final passing instruction to Saul. And in verse 35, we see Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so unfortunately, when, when kingly authority, when military might is the way that we think that our solution is going to come, uh, we find that that usually results in just sorrow because that's not the way that God wants us to act as a people. And that's not where we're going to find our great deliverance. That's not where we're going to find our life abundant. So we do see that that sorrow and that grieving process as well. 
let's end on a good note. <laughs> There's a lot more that we'll uh, we'll touch base with Saul, especially in the next episode when we talk a little bit more about David, um, because David spent a lot of his early years in actually in direct service to Saul. And so we do get to see a lot more insight and behind the scenes of kind of Saul's deterioration uh, from a moral perspective and as a leader and as a king. Um, we see a lot of that through the interaction with David. Uh, at the same time, we get to see David being molded and shaped into uh, a more and more faithful and devout man of God, a man after God's own heart, a king after God's own heart eventually. Uh, so we'll end up with just a... Uh, with a very good point, um, which is 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. And that's where we'll end it, with a little bit of hope. And so this is after Samuel was grieving over Saul for basically the rest of his life, and he never saw him again until the day of his death. So chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Arise, fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Arise, go, and fill your horn with oil. And that's, I think, good advice for us when we go through our periods of mourning and grieving. And whether that's grieving a loss or maybe that's grieving over our own national leaders, leadership, and, and politics, we might find ourselves genuinely grieving. But there might be a point where God says, okay, there is a season for grieving, for mourning, but now is the time to arise, to fill your horn with oil, and to go. Our hope is not found in the leadership of men. Our hope, our great hope, is found in the leadership, in the reconciliation in a loving relationship, walking each day closer and closer with our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And on that note, I urge you, fill your horn with oil, arise and go. Walk in the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. This day and each day, be blessed.